the Gospel of Luke um, chapter 11, and I'm going to start reading here in verse 29. It says, As the crowds increase, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. Um, I want to share three things with you this morning out of this text. And, and here's the first. Uh, I just want you to see it. that there, there is no sign more spectacular than the empty tomb of our Savior. There, there is no sign more spectacular than the empty tomb of our Savior. And, and, and now, I don't want you to miss what's going on, so we've got to do a little bit of backtracking. This whole passage actually begins uh, way back in verse 14 of this chapter. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute, and when the demon left the man who had been uh, the man that had been mute spoke. So it was actually the demon that was mute that made the man mute. And, and so Jesus cast out the demon. The man begins to speak. And the crowd is amazed. But verse 15, it says, But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And that kind of launched Jesus into this long conversation, 17 all the way down through 28, where he's addressing this thing. He's like, listen, that, it, it can't be from the power of Beelzebub. A kingdom uh, divided against itself can't stand. And then he tells this story. He says, so, so imagine there's a guy that is possessed by a demon, and the demon leaves and, and says, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else, but he can't find another suitable place to go. So he decides, I'm going to go back. Um, and you remember the, the wording, the phrasing, he actually says, I'm going to go back to my home. And, and so we had some lessons there. And, and this is actually where we left off. So that Satan has a kingdom and its grip is strong, that the kingdom of God and the, and the kingdom of Satan are at war and, and we are forced to choose a side. And then, of course, we had this. This has been one of our most popular uh, Facebook posts, I think, of the year, uh, that you can clean up your life, but if you don't give it, to God, Satan still owns you. Um, you can look for those things on Tuesday and, uh, and share them and save them, those kind of things. Um, and, 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 and it's easy to get through that. You get all the way to 28 and you think, okay, well, the text I'm reading today is a completely different story. It, it's completely separated, but it's actually not. Look back at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says this, Others tested him by asking for a sign. So, see, see, Jesus healed this man. He drove out this, this mute demon, uh, drove him out. The man is healed. He begins to speak. The crowd is amazed. Some say that uh, it's by Beelzebub that he does it. And others, it says, asked him for another sign from heaven. That's, that's where our text comes in. Jesus has already brought dead people back to life at this point. He's already made lame people walk at this point. He's made blind people see at this point. He's fed thousands of people with a sack lunch at this point. And he's just made a mute person talk by driving out the demon that possessed him. And, 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 and the majority of the crowd is amazed. But there's a minority, there's a small group. Well, there's a small group that thinks he did it by the power of, of Satan. And then there's a small group that demands, they ask him for another sign from heaven. I I want you to get the gravity of it. They have just witnessed a miracle. But here they are wanting more. They they want more. You might recall the same thing happened when Jesus fed the 5,000. Do you remember? 
fed the 5,000, and then he went up to pray, told the disciples to get in a boat and cross the lake. He walks out on water in the middle of the night. But eventually, they, they, when he gets on board, the storm calms. They get to the other side of the lake. Do you remember what happens the very next morning? The crowds show up again. And do you remember what they asked for? More. They wanted more bread. They wanted more food. They said, wait, wait a second, hold on. Moses fed our forefathers for 40 years. You only gave us one meal. We want more. And, and, and here, here's the inclination in, in all these texts. If you, if you give us more, then and only then will we believe that you are who you say you are. If you, you do that, if you'll give us more proof, if you'll give us more signs, then we'll believe. And, and Jesus here, folks, he just says, no. No. I, I mean, look, verse 29 and, and 30, as the crowds increase, he says, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. They're only going to get the sign of Jonah. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. Jesus is saying, verse 30, listen, I'm the sign. The Son is, is the sign. That's Jesus' point. His life, His death, His resurrection is sufficient. There's nothing more spectacular than, than the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. There's nothing, there's no sign greater than that. And if the heart of a person is not open to Jesus and His message, then listen to me, no sign is going to change that. No sign is going to change that. The Son is the sign. His life is his death, his resurrection, it's enough. There's no sign more spectacular than the empty tomb of our Savior. Okay, so we start there. Two. <clears throat> I believe this text teaches us that blind and unbelieving people will always look at Jesus and fail to see that he is more than they could ever ask for or demand. Blind and unbelieving people will look at Jesus and they will fail to see that he is more than they could ever ask for or demand. The great irony here in our story, which is very sad, the irony is that Jesus is here, right? That, that's the irony. He, he's right here in, in front of their, their face, literally. He's right here in front of these people. He, he is literally just driven out a, a, a demon in their midst. They've witnessed it. Jesus, God in, in the flesh, is here. The, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, is, is here. The, the inaugurated, long-awaited kingdom has, has come, right? The kingdom that these people have been waiting for and looking for. Right? God is, is right here. He's in their midst. He's looking at them. The maker of heaven and earth is, is right here. The, the one that calls the stars out by, by name is, is right here. The one that says to the oceans they can only come this far is, is right here. He's standing in, in front of their face. The one that, that made everything, uh, everything was made through him, by him, for him. The one that holds it all together is standing in their midst, right, right in front of their face. The one in whom all of the fullness of God dwells is right here. He's right here in front of them. And instead of tapping into that... And instead of tapping into the very power of God, and instead of tapping into the very power and substance of life, they ask for a trick. They, they ask for a, a sign. Life and, and breath 
actually stands before them. Like, like abundance is available, and yet they want to settle for a sign. They have no idea who it is that truly stands before them. So Jesus says to his disciples, these people, verse 29, they're wicked. They're wicked. This is a wicked generation. He said, not just these folks. This generation is, is wicked. And it's an interesting word, wicked. It actually has two meanings. Uh, it has a spiritual meaning and a physical meaning. Same word. It has two meanings. Spiritually, it means wicked. And physically, it means blind. And the sad truth is that these people are both. They're wicked and blind. They cannot see who Jesus is. They've been waiting for him, is what they say. And yet he, who holds the keys to everything you can imagine, is standing right before him, and they do not see him. They do not see him. It reminds me of Luke 19, which we will get to eventually one of these days. Luke 19, 42 says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, or had only seen on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. It's a sad, ironic story. It's a sad, ironic story. Blind and unbelieving people will look at Jesus. And, and, and they will fail to see that he is more than they could ever imagine or ask for. Brings me to the third point. I think this is important. If then theology, which is the kind of thinking about God that we see in this passage, if then theology is dangerous, deadly, and ultimately it can result in damnation. Now, I, 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 I got to be honest, I don't like to use that word. I told Alan, I don't, I, don't even, I don't feel comfortable with that word, but it works with all the Ds, and I'm an alliteration guy. But it is the reality of this text. Half of this text is, is talking about judgment and hell. Half of it. And, and, and we, 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 we can't ignore it. We, we can't just kind of just talk about the positive. We, we have to talk about the result of these people's unbelief. And Jesus says the result of their unbelief is going to be judgment and condemnation is actually what, what he says. That's the point that he's making. These people are demanding more. They want another sign. And the implication of the text is this, right? If they receive it, then they will believe it, right? If they receive, then they will believe. Like, like if you feed us again, then we'll, we'll believe. If you'll do this, if you'll do that, then we will believe in you. And Jesus responds to these people and their if-then thoughts about God and about heaven and about the kingdom of God. He responds to them and their if-then thoughts by talking about judgment. And he says, listen, the queen of Sheba traveled halfway around the world to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, God stands right here before you, and you will not listen to me. He says, listen, all right, the Ninevites, they, they heard the preaching of Jonah, and they repented. Like, with Jonah, the most unwilling prophet ever, they repent. I mean, like, this is the guy that, like, you know, cursed 
the, the plant because it wouldn't cover him anymore. I mean, I mean, this is not the greatest prophet in the history of mankind. And they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Yet I tell you, I'm the one that sent Jonah to Nineveh. I'm the one that rescued him from the sea. I'm the one that told the fish to swallow him. And I am standing here before you, and you're demanding more of me. You've got God's. And Jesus says the only thing you're going to receive is a sign of the empty tomb and eventually judgment. Judgment. So I want to talk about why this kind of thinking about God is so offensive to God. I don't have a slide for you, so if you're going to try to jot this down, I'll talk slowly. But I believe it's offensive to God for three reasons, this if-then theology. One, I think it's offensive to God because it declares that the life and the death of Jesus are not enough for you. Just let the gravity of that sink in. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whosoever believes in him would not have to perish, but would have eternal life. And when we demand more of God in order to believe him, We are saying that the gift of his one and only son is not enough. Yeah. Do do you see the offense in that? And and, and listen, I'm just telling you, this is why it's so dangerous. This kind of thinking is dangerous because it's selfish. It puts us at the center of the story. It's it's all self-centered, isn't it? This kind of if-then theology, this if-then thinking about God and if-then thinking about the kingdom of God, it takes all of the focus off of Jesus, who's the one that's supposed to be elevated, right? When the Son of Man is lifted up, he draws all men to himself. You know what happens when you're lifted up? The opposite. The opposite. Boy, that'll preach this week, won't it? We're lifting up a lot of things other than Jesus, aren't we? They're offensive. People going the other way. This if-then theology, it puts us at the center of the story. It puts us as the main attraction, and that's not our place. So it's offensive to God. It's offensive to God. And finally, it's offensive to God because it says that God's holding out on us. If-then theology declares that God is cheap. Really. It does. It it declares that God is is cheap, that, that he is not good and, and that he's not going to give us what's best. He's going to give us the bare minimum. That's what if-then theology declares. God, I need more. You're holding out on me. You're only giving me just enough to get by. I need more than that. And, and friends, because of this, this type of thinking, it's not just wrong. When it's extrapolated out, it, it's actually dangerous. It can be deadly. And, and I'm telling you, like as in this text, if that ultimately is your driving force when it comes to salvation, it'll lead to damnation. It absolutely will, because God has done more than we deserve. God has done more than you deserve. He does not owe you anything. Anything. And he and his sacrifice will not be mocked. And so we can't preach around the fact that half this passage talks about judgment. Just can't. Because it's the truth. Now, I think that says something. Most of us in this room, many of us are Christians. I think most of us probably here in the early service are. 
But, but I think that theology, that if-then theology, while we don't believe that for salvation, I see a lot of Christians that are still trying to cling to it for sanctification. God, if you'll do this, then I'll obey you, right? And so let's talk about how, how we apply a message like this in our lives real quick. And I'll, I'll give you the, the, the very first thing. The first thing has to do with understanding, it's a point of worship, really. It has to do with understanding who is right here in our midst. And so uh, let's go to application. So the first thing I want to call you to do, I think the passage calls you to do, is just to simply stand in awe of our Savior. To to stand in awe of of our Savior. There is nothing more spectacular than Jesus. Nothing. There's there's nothing more spectacular than the fact that, that the God of the universe that made everything chose to step out Right? Chose to step out of, of eternity and, and, and come into and step into humanity. That he forever became the God man to live the perfect life that you couldn't, that was demanded, and to die the death that you deserved. And then he didn't stay dead, but he conquered death. He rose again. He ascended into heaven and then sent his spirit to live inside of anybody that would believe. That's the mystery of the gospel that the gospel begins to talk about in Genesis. That's the fulfillment that we find in the New Testament that Paul boasts of in Colossians. That's the mystery. Christ in you, the, the, the hope of glory. And, and so what I would say to you, it's like, like, like that's who's here. The Bible says when two or more are gathered, that that's who's in our midst. So stop looking for more. We, we, we've gotten to this point that we want to, we want to um, uh, experience God in a new way or in an old way that we experienced him at one time. I know so many Christians that they want to get back to a place that they used to be with God. That sounds like the Israelites, my friend. You know, the ones that had massive celebrations and festivals to look back to times that God was with them. Once a year, they, they would remember how God used to move in their life. And in the midst of that, Jesus comes. He's like, I am here. I am here. I am here. I mean, it's like Horton hears a hoot you, right? I mean, every, like, like Jesus, that gentle whisper of God is screaming, I'm here. I am right here in your midst. And you are missing me because you're looking for something else. You want more blessing. You want more abundance. Friends, remember, Jesus has changed that ministry. It's not just about blessing. He's like, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross so I can give you ultimate blessing, ultimate healing, right? And that Jesus is here in our midst. And I I want to be honest with you. He's here in your life. I taught the youth Wednesday night. And and there were some that had come in. And and one of the um, young men in particular, he felt like God had left him. (sighs) No, my friends. God hasn't left you. He is here. He is here. He is here. So I, I, would, just, I would just say to you, we've got to be a part of the crowd that is, stands in awe. You know, the, the part that is, is amazed at all that Jesus has done for us, that that is enough for us. And, and, and that if no other miracle ever happened again, that we would be so content in what the cross and the empty tomb have already done. Could we be that? Even if the healing from cancer doesn't come? Even if the promotion never happens? Even if for the rest of our life, our marriage is just work. It's not as lovey-dovey as we'd like it to be. Could we be content in the fact that the cross of Christ is enough? Could we stand in awe of this Savior? And all that he's done. I, I think that's what the passage demands. Just to stand in awe of Jesus. He is right here. To, to be amazed. Okay. Uh, second. Um, 
after we understand that there's nothing more spectacular than Jesus, I, I think the second thing the text calls us to do is to experience the blessing of obedience. The blessing of obedience. So here, here's bad theology, if then. God, if you'll do this, then I'll obey you. Lord, if you let me win the lottery, then I will not just tithe, I will double tithe, okay? I mean, I will give you 20% of it. That's a pretty good deal, God. Everybody says when the mega million jackpot is up to 400 million. Some, somebody even told me, well, I, I bought a ticket and I told God I'd build the whole church. Well, God bless you. When the jackpot's at $3.5 million and you decide to give it all, give them a call. Let's see what happens. Okay? We live, and, and guys, I, I know we don't want to admit it, but, but many of us, this is how we feel. God, if, if you'll just do this, then I'll serve you more. We've prayed those kind of prayers. They're... they're Very self-centered prayers, but we've prayed them. We have to confess that before God. We've prayed these kind of prayers. We still pray these kind of prayers. God, if if you'll heal my wife, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, if you'll work in my kids, if you'll, then I will get up every day and read my Bible. I will do this. I will do that. That's the if-then theology. So I want to turn that on its head this morning, and I want to challenge you with this concept that the Bible actually says that the blessing comes through obedience. Okay? Okay? So, so you've got to put the then first. What's the then you're promising God? Put that first. God, I'll wake up early. Okay? So put that first. The wake up early and read your Bible. Do that first and then see that the blessing follows, right? See, see, see that the, the blessing comes, right? Because that, that's how it works. The blessing comes through o- o- obedience. The blessing comes through obedience. <coughs> Do I have a scripture slide? I, I add one, yeah, John 13, 7. Uh, Jesus is speaking. Uh, he's just washed the disciples' feet here in John 13. I almost didn't add this, so I wasn't sure. Uh, he's just washed the disciples' feet. And then he tells them, now you need to go and do this to others. You've got to serve other people. This is, this is my command to you. Now go and do what's been done to you. And this is what he says to him. It's pretty important because he's saying, listen, if you obey what I've just commanded you. He says, now that you know these things, that, that service to others is so important. He says, you're going to be blessed if what? If you do them. Where does the blessing come from? Their obedience. If you do them, you're going to be blessed. Right? It's not God, if you do this, then I will. Blessing's not first. The blessing comes as a result of the obedience, all right? So we've got to switch that, switch that on its head. I, I just want to challenge you guys with that. I think that, that changes massive things in our lives, okay? Do this with me this morning. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray uh, this morning and, and see how the Lord um, would just kind of move in our midst here today. Father, um, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for its power. Um, Lord, uh, I, I, I do fear that many of us... Um, well, we, we do. We often fall um, into wrong types of thinking about you. Uh, Lord, o- often many of us do miss the fact that you are here, right here in our midst. We spend so much of our time and our energy and our effort looking for more, and yet we have everything, not just before us, but in us. The fullness of God And all of the mysteries of God dwell in Christ who dwells in us. 
And we miss that all the time. And so today, would you just call us back to the beauty of the cross and the empty tomb? Would you just call us back, loving God, to what we have um, in Jesus, please? And, and, and today, would, would we just declare that um, we've got everything that we need? Everything. And so today, Jesus, that's my prayer um, for these folks, is that we would literally, we would just stand amazed. We would be in awe of you, and you would be enough for us. Please, 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 just do that, Lord, in in us today. And it's in your name we pray uh, this. Amen. So um, our response is a little different today. It's an act of worship. Uh, And so I'm going to ask you, um, if you don't mind, to stand. And um, what I'm going to ask you to do responsively is actually to sing a song. Just to sing a song, uh, but not to go through any motions. I want you to really think about what we've just talked about. I want you to think about the fact that Jesus is here. I want you to think about how many times maybe you've missed him because you were wanting something more. You wanted more blessing, more something, right? And I just want you to think, like, this is the blessing. We get to do this. We get to worship this Jesus who's right here in our midst right now. And, and I just wonder, could we, could we let this thing called worship recapture us this morning? Could we be in, in awe of it really. And so I'm going to ask that you would just respond. If you know the words to this song, once we start singing, you close your eyes, whatever you need to do. You feel the need to to come and pray, you can do that. But we're just going to respond to God through worship uh, right now. And so I'd ask that you would sing uh, with us as Alan leads us.